Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Good morning. Morning. Hey, there we go. <laughs> um, so the last time I preached, uh, Josh complained because I only went 27 minutes, um, and he's usually somewhere around like the 40-minute mark. I think he's worried you're going to start expecting these like shorter sermons, get in, get out quickly. Um, don't worry. The last time, uh, my, my word count and my manuscript was about 3,000 words, and when I hit print this morning, I was at 4,400. So we should be, should be good. Um, yeah, so we got some work to do. So I'm gonna pray and then we'll just dive in. Um, Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for this uh, expression uh, locally here in Seattle of your church around the world. And thank you for the, the truth um, of your word and for how the, the words that were written to this church 2,000 years ago still apply very much so to our lives today. Um, we just ask that you'll be with us, be with me, that you will... Um, push me out of the way and say what you have to say to all of us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So to really understand uh, this letter to the Christians in Sardis, we're going to do, do a couple things, a little bit of work. Um, two points of context that really kind of set the stage for everything that's happening. So uh, the first is a lesson in Greek, and the second is a lesson in ancient history. Um, the, the Greek word anoma is used four times in this letter. Um, that word anoma appears in the New Testament 228 times. The majority of the time we see that is translated into our English word name or names. Uh, in this particular letter, in the beginning where Josh read, I know you have the reputation of being alive. Um, that word reputation is the Greek word anoma. Um, some, some translations say, I know you have a name that you're alive. So either way, whether your Bible says reputation or a name, that Greek word is anoma. So in modern day America, when we talk about a name, it's usually just the word that identifies something or someone. Um, if I hear someone say Ben, I'm gonna glance over, see if they're talking to me or maybe about me. Um, if I hear Benjamin, I'm gonna look around for my mom or my wife and assume that I'm in trouble. <laughs> um, if you say Benjamin Robert, I'm gonna stop, I'm gonna turn, I'm gonna straighten up and look at you uh, because I know I did something wrong. So that, that idea, right? That name identifies who we are and the more specific you get, the stronger response we're gonna have. Um, in this particular verse, I like that the, the English word there is reputation because I think that carries more weight in our culture today. I think it communicates better the idea of the original Greek here. Um, a reputation, right, is something that good or bad is, is earned based on your action, based on your past performance. 
Um, the line of work that I'm in, we gain a lot of business through referrals. We have a lot of re repeat customers. So our reputation is really important, right? A good reputation can make us really successful. A bad reputation could shut us down because it is, we're dependent on repeat business, on new business, and those types of things. Um, when we talk about reputation, right, that gets more to the core of what something or someone is. So think about, think about Amazon, right? Amazon's reputation, you can find anything you want and have it in your house in two days or less, right? Or Costco, right? What, what, what do you know about Costco? The gas lines block traffic, and you can buy a ton of stuff for a low price per item, right? That's, that's the reputation they've built. Um, or Pastor Josh, what, what is his reputation, right? If you listen to him preach more than a couple of times, you know that he once spent the night in jail as a young adult. <laughs> um, he is a, a fast food aficionado, and he loves warm Domino's pizza. <laughs> um, so that, that Greek word, anoma, is a combination of all of these ideas. All right, name, reputation, and really even more than that, um, one definition that I read talks about it being a manifestation or revelation of someone's character, the thing that distinguishes them from all others. Uh, the Scottish biblical scholar, New Testament Greek professor, Alexander Souter explains, according to Hebrew notions, a name is inseparable from the person to whom it belongs. It is something of his essence, okay? The word anoma reaches in and touches the very core of who we are. So when Jesus said, I know your reputation, he was speaking to their core, their heart, their soul, their spirit, right? It's what made them distinct from everyone else. Like Josh's anoma, his distinction is his obsession with this, let's be honest, second tier national pizza chain. Um, if you wanna know, when it comes to national pizza chains, the correct order is Papa Murphy's, Papa John's, Pizza Hut, and then Domino's. <laughs> Domino's, I mean, barely is better than the Red Baron frozen pizzas you can get at Safeway. <laughs> um, so there you go, there, there's a little Greek language lesson. Uh, the word anoma, right, speaking to the essence, the core of who we are. Now we're gonna shift and we're gonna talk a little ancient history. Um, as Josh has discussed over the last few weeks, the letters to the seven churches were written to a cluster of churches in Asia Minor, which is modern day Western Turkey, which at that time was one of the wealthiest districts in the Roman Empire. Religion and spirituality were a regular part of the daily life of everyone in Rome and even encouraged by the government as long as you did it their way. Right? Christians could live and worship Jesus in peace as long as they also participated in all of the religious expectations and activities of the Roman Empire. Specifically, that means you worship Caesar as Lord along with a host of other Roman gods. You could worship Jesus if you also worship Caesar as Lord. As we've seen in some of these prior letters, those that were truly faithful to Jesus often faced persecution and were even put to death because they remained faithful and didn't adopt that Roman spirituality and worship of, of other gods, including Caesar. So Sardis is part of that culture in every way. Sardis had its own temple to Artemis, goddess of the hunt, goddess of vegetation and fertility, among several other things. Um, so depending on what you were seeking when you were worshiping Artemis, it involved a variety of activities because she was the goddess of many different things. But specifically, as the goddess of fertility, um, the worship of Artemis would usually involve all types of sordid sexual activities, often with prostitutes whose job was to be at the temple, to be a part of those worship services and ceremonies. Um, the other large structure that Sardis is known for is their bathhouse gymnasium complex. As the gymnasium, outdoor arena, all types of athletic competitions were held, and because it was the Roman Empire, most of the time the athletes would compete naked. Um, and then the bathhouse itself. 
While it is a bathhouse used like bathing, spa-like treatments and those types of things, there was also an incredible amount of weird sexual things that happened there as well. Uh, when archeologists excavated the bathhouse in Pompeii, they found carvings on the walls with graphic depictions of all genders and ages of people doing all types of different things. So this, this is Sardis, this is the culture, it's this hyper-sexualized, weird kind of place. All right, there we go, deep breath, right? Learned a little Greek, a little ancient history. I probably talked a little bit too fast. I tend to do that. Uh, we also clarified where the best pizza place is. So all of those things minus pizza gives us the backdrop for the letter to the church in Sardis. So with that in mind, I want to read this one more time. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed with us in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the opening of this letter, Jesus opens like he does with every other one, with a unique greeting, reminding them something specific about himself. For Sardis, he chose to tell them that he has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, holding them in his hands. So if you remember from the first sermon that, that Josh preached when we kicked off this series, that number seven is symbolic throughout the book of Revelation. It's not referring to literally seven things he's holding, but it is the, the number seven means it's, it's perfect, it's complete, it's full. Early in Revelation, we also read that the seven stars represent the angels of the churches, which are meant to be the spiritual repre representatives of those churches, which is getting a little confusing. So one commentator kind of helps explain this dynamic, the idea of the the seven stars. The angels are heavenly beings closely identified with the churches they represent and help. The churches are addressed through the representative angels to remind the believers that already a dimension of their existence is heavenly and that the real home is not with the unbelieving earth dwellers. One of the purposes of the church meeting on earth in its weekly gatherings is to be reminded of its heavenly existence and identity by modeling its worship on that of the angels and heavenly churches worship of the exalted lamb. So when Jesus tells the church in Sardis that he holds the seven stars, he's saying he's holding their most complete, true identity in the palm of his hand. He's like, I'm, I'm looking at you. This is to the seven angels, the seven stars. I'm speaking to your heart, to your soul, to your spirit, your truest identity. So on the one hand, right, he's holding, holding their identity. The other hand, he, he's holding the seven spirits, which means he's holding the perfect, full, complete Holy Spirit of God in all of his fullness, all of his perfection, all of his knowledge, He's holding the spirit of God. So he's bringing this message with the perfect perspective of their spiritual state, right? So on the one hand, he's holding their spiritual identity. I'm holding who you are right here, and I'm looking at it through the lens of the perfect spirit of God. I see you for who you are to your core, and what I see is death. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead, <laughs> right? The Greek word anoma, he's looking at the core of who they are. He sees that the people around them think there's life. You have the reputation of being alive, right? So again, 
your anoma, what you believe to be truest about yourself is life, vibrancy, activity, I see you marked by death. How? How, how is that? If they believe, if the community around them believes their reputation is, is life and vibrancy, and she's like, nah, you've you got it totally wrong, totally wrong. So I think there, there's some, some clues here, some things that, that kind of help. Compared to the other letters we've studied so far, the last four, there's something really significant missing from this one, or two things that we see in the four prior letters that were written. The churches in Ephesus, Thyatira, Smyrna, and Pergamum, their letter opened with a commendation. Say, hey, I, I see your faithfulness. I see that you've been consistent here, or you love well, or you weren't intimidated by this persecution. I, I see that. He opens with faithfulness. That doesn't happen here. He just says, you're dead. Um, the second thing, and this I think really kind of clues us into why, is that there's no talk of being faithful through persecution. All of these other churches, Jesus said, hey, the trials are coming. I know they're there. You're being persecuted. I know that. Remain faithful. Remain consistent. Follow me. There's a reason for all of this. There's no, no discussion of, of persecution to the church in Sardis, which I think gives us some clues as to maybe they weren't living the way they should. Um, so if you remember before, I talked about the, this bathhouse gymnasium complex. What I didn't mention before was that the, the Jewish synagogue shared a parking lot. I mean, it was built right next door to this bathhouse. Ancient Jewish synagogues contained the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, which is the law. It's instructions from God of how to live life. It talked about marriage. It talked about sexuality. It talked about all of the things that the day-to-day -day life should be, all of the things that were countercultural to what was happening in the Roman Empire right next door to this, to this bathhouse. As archaeologists have excavated the synagogue in Sardis, there are a couple features that, that make it a little bit unique from other synagogues. First, the altars that were built, right? So these stone altars that were constructed to be used in their worship to, to God, to Yahweh God, um, had Roman eagles carved into them. There were other statues to animals that represented loyalty to the Roman Empire, the empire that recognized Caesar as Lord. So inside the synagogue, at the altar that was used for worshiping God, was animals carved in engravings honoring Caesar as Lord. Second feature of the synagogue that makes it very unique were some of the engravings on the pillars, the actual structure itself. Jewish Christians that worship there carved their names into these pillars, but they carved their names in Greek, not Hebrew. If you remember, if you, if you know your Bible, so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were kidnapped and brought to Babylon, the Babylonians tried to change their name to the Babylonian language. They said, no, our name is who we are. Our name is our onoma. This is the core. This is what we believe. This is inseparable from our essence. That was very important to them. So in the synagogue, used for the worship of God, the Hebrew people chose to carve their names into stone using Caesar's language. The church in Sardis wasn't facing persecution because they had fully assimilated into Roman life. A theologian George Card describes this church as the perfect model of inoffensive Christianity, and author Joe Stowell, who's also president of Cornerstone University in Grand Rapids, described them as living in a get-along culture. The church of Sardis carried this reputation in the community of life. They were viewed by the, the, their peers, and they believed about themselves that they were thriving, and they may have been, right, outwardly. They could have been some of the most generous and kind people in the city. Throughout the week, they're picking up trash off the side of the road, they're serving in the soup kitchens, they're cleaning up with the local government, cleaning up the school playgrounds, they're keeping things clean and orderly and doing all kinds of work in the community, 
Sunday comes around and they go, go to their service in the synagogue. They worship God on an altar honoring Caesar as Lord. Um, then they go out and grab lunch. In the afternoon, they can hop over next door and have an orgy in the bathhouse and finish the day worshiping Artemis with the prostitutes in the temple. Right? They had embraced Roman culture. They had the appearance of life because they were living life like everyone else around them was. When Jesus looks at them, he's looking, no, I, I see that, but I'm looking into the core of who you are and I see nothing but death there. So what does he do? Right? What, is, what does Jesus do in this moment? He doesn't leave them in their state, right? He calls them to action. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you won't wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. At some point, this church knew what was right. He says to wake up and remember, strengthen what remains. They knew what fidelity to Jesus meant. They did. And if you don't, it says he says he's coming like a thief. So that, that idea of Jesus coming like a thief is mentioned in several other places in scripture as well. It's a little bit of an odd analogy for us, but for anyone living in Sardis, they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. So about 600 years before this was written, mid 500s BC, Sardis was the capital of the kingdom of Lydia. Uh, king Croesus was on the throne. He was one of the wealthiest kings in the history of this region. Sardis, and Sardis was a fortress, right? It was designed to withstand any large-scale attack from any, any army. Sardis is up on the slope of a foothill, rises at this impossible steep angle, um, almost like, essentially, it's cut into a cliff. So they put it up in the, in the air. You put watchtowers, and now you can see everything happening around you. You can see our enemy armies approaching from miles away. The cliff creates this kind of natural barrier, so you don't have to spend as much on, on your walls. And they fortified this place to make it this impregnable city. The problem with that is that they believed that it was that impregnable city, and it kind of lured them into this false sense of security. They believed they had it figured out, they had the appearance of having it figured out, but internally they were weak. Sardis fell to enemy forces twice. Um, the first time it fell was during the reign of King, King Croesus, the second time was 700 years later, but in both cases, it was taken the same way due to a lack of awareness of the weaknesses of their defense system. So during the reign of King Croesus, the Persians attacked, they put Sardis under siege, the fortification held up, so it became a waiting game. They surrounded the city, tried to cut off the resources, and just kind of said, we're gonna wait it out and see what happens. Um, there's a little bit of legend, a little bit of debate as to how the path into the city was discovered, but there's consensus around the fact it was taken by a small contingent. So according to the historian Herodotus, a single Persian soldier, one person, found a section of the wall they weren't paying attention to, weren't really guarding, because they believed the cliff was too steep and too hard, too unsafe to be scaled. So they didn't have any guards there. This single soldier climbed the cliff, got inside, let the rest of the army in, and they took the city, unaware. Same thing happened several hundred years later. Um, that time, it was, uh, there was a group of 15 soldiers that climbed the wall, got inside, opened the gate, and took them by surprise. The city of Sarchus was built to be a fortress. They believed that at its core, nothing could break their defenses, and twice it came, it fell to a thief in the night. So when Jesus tells them, if you don't wake up, I'm coming like a thief, that's where their head would go. They immediately knew, oh, he's talking about King Croesus. He's talking about how we don't pay attention. <laughs> he made, they would have made that connection. 
Jesus is telling them, hey, whether, whether I come back or whether you die, spiritual judgment is coming. You have, are so focused on your exterior, your, your external, you've assimilated into this culture and you're ignoring the core of what's going on. Judgment is coming. The eternal fate of your souls will be determined and when I look at you now, all I see is death. However, he does say there are a few. There are some in their midst who have been faithful, yet you still have a few names in Sardis. People have not sold their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. Jesus sees hope. He sees there is, there is some life. There's a glimmer there. I see people that, that are following me, that are seeking me. Um, and not just those, but this letter is to everyone. He calls out that those who are dead can still have this life. If you are walking in your death, that's why he tells them to wake up. He's, like, he's not telling them it's hopeless. He's saying, wake up, right? The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. This idea of walking in white. They will walk with me in white. I will clothe them in white. It's talking about victory processions, right? One day there will be, there will be reckoning. Jesus will come. He'll claim his victory. And in, in that time in ancient Roman culture, when Caesar had a big victory procession for his army, everyone would be clothed in clean white garments and they would walk through the city. So he's saying, hey, you can walk with me through the city. I can clothe you in white. And then we can go and sit down. At the end of Revelation, it talks about the marriage supper, right? And I'm gonna clothe my bride in white and she's gonna come and we're gonna, we're gonna sit together. He's making the connections to their culture. He's making the connections to this marriage feast that's coming. If you seek me, I will clothe you in white. I will confess before God the Father. I will confess before everyone, before the angels, that you are mine. Wake up, wake up. He hasn't given up on them. He wants to help them, and he gives them a formula. There are five commandments in this, in this chapter, right? Wake up, strengthen what remains, remember what you received and heard, keep it, and repent. He's telling them to wake up to the reality of your condition, wake up to the reality of your faith that really is non-existent. Wake up, and then find what remains and build on it, strengthen it. They still had the synagogue. They still had their services. Like, okay, you're reading the word. Do that more. Do that at home. Memorize it. Find the things that are still, the pieces that are still there. Strengthen those. Build on top of those. That's the foundation. The foundation is still there. You've just forgotten what it is. Build on that. Find the things that haven't been completely extinguished. Strengthen those. Strengthen those. The next thing he tells them to do is remember what you received and heard. Keep it. Repent. So C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a book, Screwtape Letters. It's a series of letters from Screwtape, which is a senior demon, to Wormwood, a junior demon he's mentoring. It's not, not a true story. It's C.S. Lewis's imagination of this conversation. So. Um, at one point in this conversation, Screwtape writes, it's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. Right? He says, remember. He says, keep it. He says, strengthen. He's like, you know. You already know what's there. You've just forgotten. You've just ignored it. Remember it, follow it. Remember the truth of who you are, the instructions for faith you've been given, and repent. Jesus doesn't talk about the temple of Artemis. He doesn't talk about the bathhouse. He, he's talking about him. Hey, he's talking to the core of who they are. It's like, it's like, yeah, yes, there's all of this sin, there's all this activity, but that sin is sin, right? Whether you are seeking identity in your career, whether you are looking to your friends or to a relationship to define your core of who you are, or, or whether you are living in this hypersexualized Roman culture, the sin isn't the point. The point is where you're finding your identity. Who are you looking to? What are you looking to? 
right? In the eyes of the Romans, they were doing everything right. They were active, they were alive, but they had abandoned the one who holds their true identity, their spirit, their soul. They were seeking life, seeking validation in the culture around them, seeking life and validation not from the one who created them to be an icon, but from the people in their life around them. How many people in, in Seattle does this describe? Right? Look into the world around them, around us. Look into our jobs, look into our vacations, look into whatever it is to define who we are. Right? If you were to ask the average person on the street, after you defined it for them, ask them what their anoma is, what is it that defines the core of who you are, your spiritual identity, what kind of answers do you think you're gonna get? So, when I was working on this sermon uh, a couple weeks ago, I was stuck, I stood up, need to take a break, so I got up, kids were in bed, I walked downstairs, did my fatherly duty, and turned off all the lights, make sure we weren't burning electricity for no reason, um, just kind of shaking out, and I was coming back up the stairs, remember this really distinctly, so walking back up the stairs and just, just kind of thinking and, and praying, and I, I just said like, I, man, I can't, God, I can't wrap my head around this one, it's stretching my brain, and he's like, that's the point. It's not about your head, it's about your heart. They thought they had it figured out. They thought they knew what they were doing. Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna do this with them, we're gonna do that with them, we're gonna make sure no one hurts us, no one bothers us, we're gonna live this life. It's not about the head, it's not about figuring it out, it's about the heart, it's about the relationship, it's about the core of who we are, not what we can build in our head or figure out around us. In 2014, the Pew Research Center did a study, took polls of adults in Seattle to measure a variety of things, including political leading, belief about right and wrong, religious affiliation, right? One of the questions they asked was, how often do you feel a sense of spiritual peace, spiritual well-being? 53% of the people said at least once a week or more, and the other 47% were basically an even split between once or twice a month, once or twice a year, or never. Just don't have a, just have a spiritual sense of unease kind of hovering over my life all the time. 47% of the people in our city, as of eight years ago, and I would have to guess that number's gone up, just have this idea that ah, something's a little bit off, this sense of spiritual unease just kind of hovering and hanging over them. That, that feeling of unease, that spiritual sense of unease, if you don't know Jesus, it's a gift from him. Uh, if you do, it's an attack of the devil, and I, I wanna talk about both, right? If you don't know Jesus, he's stepping right into the middle of that with this letter and saying, yeah, I know that. <laughs> I see your reputation. I see the death, and I'm telling you what the solution is. Trust me, believe in me, follow me. The one who sees your soul, he knows your anoma. He's calling you to wake up and to remember what you have learned, what he put in us, that, that little feeling of, of unease, that little feeling of conscience. He's like, listen to that, pay attention to it, right? The Bible tells us in the beginning, God created everything. Everything was good, right? He saw man, man was very good and then sin broke it, right, sin broke everything. Every time we feel sorrow, pain, every time we observe death, every time it rains until June 30th, right, we're reminded things aren't the way they're supposed to be. We all carry in us this sense of what we were supposed to be, the icon that God created us to be, and sin has broken that, and so when we feel this, this unease or this, oh, this, this, this doesn't seem quite right, that's a gift from God. He's telling you, hey, there's something missing. There's a hole there and I can fill that hole. Right, Jesus came to fix that, to restore what's broken, to redeem it, to redeem us, and to live and walk so we can live and walk in the original purpose for which we were created. He did that by taking our sin on his shoulders. He became the object of God's wrath, dying on the cross, taking the condemnation for the death, taking that condemnation from us on himself, and then defeated the power 
of death by being raised, right? He tells us if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Awaken to new life with Christ, and he'll give us the strength and help we need to repent, to keep it, to remember, to turn from old patterns, old lifestyle, walk with him in glory. So if you feel that, that sense of unease, and you've never, never fully committed to, to Christ, to Jesus as your savior, man, let's do that. That's what this is all about. That's why we're here, right? The, this, this is fun. We enjoy being together, but the point is to get to the core of who we are, to get to the spirit of who we are, the soul, and to live with Jesus. So if you have confessed and believed that Jesus is Lord, the message for you from this letter is to stay awake, to be watchful, right? Repent, keep what you've learned, follow him. That sense of, of spiritual unease is an attack of the devil, okay? Jesus is very clear no one slips out of his hand. It's like when, when you, you are mine, I have plucked you, I hold you, and you cannot do anything to lose that, to slip away, to make it fall away. So in this passage where it says, wake up, that same Greek word is used in 1 Peter 5.8, and it's translated there to be watchful. So 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful, stay awake. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. How? How do we resist him? By being firm in your faith. Okay. If you have confessed and believed that Jesus is Lord, Satan already has lost the battle for your soul, right? It's over. Jesus won. He can't, he can't do anything about it. The best hope that he has now is to slow down our witness, to make us less effective for the kingdom of God, to make it hard, right? That's, that's all he can do is to make it hard. Just like in Sardis, the attack of Satan is rarely a full assault, Right? First Peter describes him as, as prowling around. He's looking, looking for a weakness, a chink in the armor, an unguarded spot on the, on the cliff he can climb. He's looking for it. Okay. This passage for us today, if you have trusted Jesus as your savior, the, the message for you today is to be watchful. Strengthen your spiritual disciplines. Strengthen what remains. Are you consistent in the word? Keep doing that. Are you consistent at church? Keep going. Do you have good community? Yes. Do you pray a lot? Yes. Keep doing those things. Be firm in your faith because the devil is always prowling around and looking, looking for the weakness. Jesus doesn't leave us to our own devices, doesn't leave us to fight that alone, right? He gives us, gives us the formula, and he is the one that holds our truest and most inner identity. He's looking out through the Spirit of God, and he says, you have what you need. Remember, keep it, follow me. Seattle's a hard city to live in, right? It's a hard place to be, hard city to live in, especially as a Christian. Um, when, we, when we were driving here this morning, uh, Liam, my nine-year-old, asked me, he said, hey, Dad, what are you preaching about today? I was like, ah, oh, well, I told my nine-year-old about the city of Sardis? No, probably not. <laughs> so I said, hey, you know, this, it's really, it's about Jesus telling these people, here's, here's how to live life in a hard city that doesn't want you to be a Christian. That's, that's what it's about. It's about when people forget and abandon him, what they need to do. It can be as simple as, right, we're not, I hope we aren't, plan on going to the, the temple prostitutes later. If you are, we might need to have a conversation about, <laughs> about something. Um, but the core, right, the core of this message is, is just a question of identity. What are you looking at? What are you looking to? What are you looking for? To find that sense of community, to find the sense of what makes you feel alive, what makes your inner core really thrive and be alive. Is it, is it the culture? Is it your career? Is it money? Is it anything but Jesus? And if it is, Jesus says, hey, wake up, 
that's not going to do it for you. It's not going to get you what you need. It's going to leave you wanting. It's going to leave you vulnerable because those things will fail you. Those things will let you down. Right? That's why, this is why we finish every service we have at the communion table. Right? If you're living with a sense of spiritual unease, it may be because you don't know Christ as your Savior. And he's inviting you today, as with the church in Sardis so many years ago, to step into life with him. His body was broken on a cross so that ours wouldn't have to be. His blood was shed to wash us clean from the condemnation that sin brings. And that's what we celebrate with communion every single week. If you feel a sense of spiritual unease, but you're confident that you trust Christ as your savior, that is the scheme of a devil to make you doubt that what God told you is true. Okay? Jesus does not let people fall out of his hand. If you have trusted him as your savior and you feel this unease, that is an attack against your true identity. Push that away. As you take communion today, be reminded, right, his sacrifice was once for all. There's nothing you can do to take yourself outside of that grace, that mercy, that love. In a couple minutes, we're gonna close out like we always do, with a moment of silence to reflect, to pray, or just sit in the confidence and forgiveness of our Savior, right? How deep the Father's love for us. And then, then we'll take communion. Um, after the service, I'll be up front, Josh will be up front, and if you're living with that sense of spiritual unease, man, we'd love to dig into that with you. If that's, whether that's you don't know if you trust in Christ or you're confident you have, whatever that is, we'd love to dig into that with you and pray with you. That's why we're here, right? This church exists to make disciples who follow Jesus in real life, and that means caring for the core of who we are. If we're going to follow Jesus in real life, we have to get to the core of who we are. And so if you're feeling that, that just that something hanging over you, please come pray with us, talk to us, um, find us later, whatever it is, that's, that's why we're here. That's why we're doing what we're doing every single week. So, so I'm gonna pray, um, Ben will come up and then we will we'll close out. Father, thank you that you are faithful, even when and especially when we're not. Thank you for this letter, thank you that um, even, even a church that was marked by, by death, was marked by compromise, was marked by abandonment of their faith, you said, hey, I see you, I love you, I see the core of who you are, strengthen what's there, find it, keep it, repent, follow me, walk away from these things. Lord, thank you that you never, ever give up on those that you love. Um, yeah, I just ask, man, if, if anyone, anyone here, anyone listening online or listening to this podcast later, Lord, that um, if there's a, just that sense of unease, that you will step into that, that you will open eyes and open hearts to the reality of, of our spiritual state, if that means we need to trust you for the first time, if that means we need to continue to read and to pray and to strengthen our faith in what you have already done and accomplished that can never be taken away, Lord, we just ask that you will work and move and change us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your sacrifice. And pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us on Gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are his.